Well, this morning I thought we would return to a series that I began before the um, before the uh, outbreak that we were going through in the book of Psalms. And uh, so this morning we're going to find ourselves, we're going to skip a psalm and come to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Now, it is the seventh week um, since we started meeting at the beginning of this crisis. And I don't know about you, but it seems like it's both been a long time and not that long in terms of when it began. It seems like time has flown and, and then at, at other times it seems like it's crawling, by, it, it's crawling by. And when I first began these services, the first sermon I preached was on Jesus's interesting response when questioned about why God allowed these kinds of disasters, this kind of pandemic, to exist in his sovereignty. If God is sovereign, so the question goes, why does he allow death and suffering? And we explored that in the first sermon in this series when I looked at Jesus' response in Luke 13, where he says to those asking those questions, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, we acknowledge at the time, and I think we still sometimes struggle, the, 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 the response of Jesus to their question about the, the, the disasters or the pandemics of their day seems a, a bit puzzling. In fact, it feels, uh, if we were to use sort of a modern term, uh, judgy. It feels like judgy and, and negative. It's unexpected because most, of the, most people don't think of themselves as anything other than fundamentally good, right? That's how we think about ourselves. We might admit that we have some problems. We might admit that but th that we have some, some weaknesses, but doesn't everybody have those kinds of things? It's not like we're that bad, right? That's sort of how we think, isn't it? That's the, the mentality we have. But the answer, the clear answer in, to that question is that according to the Jesus and the Bible, we definitely are that bad. We are that bad. The Bible is really clear about this. Romans 3 says it over and over again. There is no one righteous. No, not one. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And this is really important because this is something I think many of us uh, have been influenced by in our, in, in our day and age. We're influenced by mostly by what we feel. And just because we don't feel some, that we are something doesn't mean that we aren't something. One of the interesting things that I think came to light this week were studies showing that people had had the coronavirus and not even known that they had it. That community infection likely started a lot earlier than we thought. Maybe some, some of the people watching this broadcast this morning had the infection and didn't even know it. Maybe you had, if we think about that, maybe you had a lethal, potentially lethal infection without knowing it, without even really feeling its effects. Maybe it felt like allergies, or maybe it felt like something, or maybe you didn't even notice it at all. But you see, it doesn't ultimately matter whether you feel something, ultimately, it matters whether it actually exists or if, if it's actually true. Just because we can't feel it doesn't mean that it's not true. We might think, for example, that someone is an amazing person. Imagine if you heard of someone who was a true humanitarian, someone who worked tirelessly to end violence against women and children. In our day and age, that person would be, I think, characterized as a hero. And there are people that do that. In the 19th century, there was actually a man who fit that description. But it was interesting because this man had a different opinion of himself than others. 
You see, this man took the Bible's description of sin seriously. And though he had done incredible things to save the lives of women and children in his life through his humanitarian work, he identified with this text in Psalm 51 that's before us this morning. This psalm of repentance. The man I'm talking about is William Carey, the first Reformed Baptist missionary to India. He worked tirelessly, not just for the labors of the gospel, but he also worked to uh, protect the lives of women in, in, the, uh, in the practice of widow burning and infanticide. And he worked across faith lines, too. He's famous for having worked with Hindu reformers like Ram Mohan Roy to protect the lives of women and children. But this is how he thought of himself. He wrote in a letter to Dr. Ryland, Dr. John Ryland, a pastor in England, back in January 30th, 1823, 200 years ago almost. He said, I have long made the language of Psalm 51 my own. Have mercy upon me, O God, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. He goes on to say this. He says, should you outlive me, John, and have any influence to prevent it, I earnestly request that no epithets of praise may ever accompany my name. All such expressions would convey a falsehood. To me belong shame and confusion of face. I can only say, hangs my helpless soul on thee. This was true to his dying day during his last illness, Carey wrote to Alexander Duff. He said, Mr. Duff, you've been saying much about Dr. Carey and his work. He says, after I am gone, please speak not of Dr. Carey, but of my wonderful Savior. And then when he died, by Carey's explicit instruction, his grave marker was, and you can go and see it, uh, was to contain nothing more than his name, the date of his birth and his death, and two lines from Isaac Watts, his favorite hymn writer. And these were the two lines. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. Interesting, isn't it? In many people's eyes, William Carey was a hero. And yet, if they were to, to read what he wrote and, and, and to even see the epithet on his, on his grave, they would say, this man had self-esteem problems. This mean man needed to be cheered up. But Carey knew, as we need to know, that we are nothing in comparison to Jesus Christ. He knew that he was a sinner who needed a savior. Carey understood his guilt before the Lord very clearly, and he knew his life would be characterized as one that was continually of repenting from sin. And this is something that I want to really convey to you. This is the true life of a true Christian. And I believe the reason why Jesus pointed us to repentance in the middle of all of this is that sometimes when we, we find the, the situations like pandemics and famines and all of those kinds of things, it sort of narrows our focus. And we certainly have had our focus narrowed, right? We don't have sports anymore. We don't have uh, the same live entertainment in the same way. All of that stuff has been stripped away. And so it gives us a, a chance to focus and to see what's actually most important in your life. And the life of the true Christian is one where we are continually repenting of our sins. Because when we strip everything away, it often reveals the idols of our hearts. Whether that comes out in a greater conflict in our homes, Lord, as we're, or friends, as we are gathered together and as we are uh, fighting together, I almost turned that into a prayer because sometimes I do pray about the conflict that occurs. Um, but as Christians, we're called to a life of continual repentance. In fact, Martin Luther, in his the first of the 95 theses that he nailed to the door of the church of Wittenberg, said this. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This morning, I want to explore that concept of biblical repentance as the path to peace with God during pandemics or really during any time. 
And I want to look at the classic psalm of repentance, Psalm 53. We read earlier uh, from in our call to worship from Psalm 32, which is another one of David's famous uh, psalms of repentance. But this is perhaps the most famous psalm. And the background of the events uh, of this psalm are, are fairly well known. If you want to read the background to them, you can look at uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. But the heart of the sin really begins in 2 Samuel 11, verse 5, verse 1 to 5. And I'll just read that for you. <clears throat> in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a beautiful woman. <clears throat> and uh, Sorry, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself because of her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So this is the, this is the context for what's happening here. This, this psalm is triggered uh, in part by David's sin of adultery. Um, instead of going out with his soldiers to war, as it says there in that first verse, David stays home and his eye is caught by the beautiful Bathsheba as she is bathing naked. And David lusts after her. And David's sin doesn't just end, though, with lust of the eyes. Right? He calls her husband, Uriah, home from the battlefield and tries to get him to sleep with her in order to cover up, cover up his sin. Uriah, if you recall, if you know the story, comes back from the, from the battlefield, but he's an honorable man, and he refuses to sleep with her. So what does David do? Well, he sends orders to murder Uriah to Uriah's commander, Joab, and says, tells him to put him into the teeth of the battle so that he will die. And then to have the, the troops go with him that are going with him to pull back so that he is guaranteed to be murdered. And all this seems to go according to plan. Uriah dies and David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. But in one of the most understated verses, I think, in all of the Bible, Samuel records the following in 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven. Samuel records, he says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But David didn't seem to think that it really mattered. Now, you've got to remember, David would have been exposed to temple worship. He would have been surrounded by spiritual things. And he'd done this wicked thing. He had committed adultery. He'd lied. He'd, he'd, he'd murdered. And yet he continued to do things just as normal. He was content to go on with his life. Like many of us, he saw no real need to have repentance in his life. And it was not until God sent Nathan the prophet to David that he realized his sin. And Nathan told him a parable about a rich man and a poor man. And he told him of the poor man's one precious lamb. And one day the rich man needed a lamb. And instead of taking it from his vast flocks, he goes and he takes the one from the poor man. The only one that he had. And he takes it and he eats it. He steals it. And David was engrossed in the story. And and when he hears this, he's absolutely outraged. And he leaps up and he says, this man deserves death. And then in one of the most, I think, powerful applications, Nathan says, you are the man. You are the man. And in that moment, David comes under conviction of his sin. He begins to realize that he is a murderer, that he's an adulterer, that he's a liar, that he's a false witness, he's a thief, he's a coveter. He's basically broken every commandment of the Ten Commandments. Certainly all the second table, commandments six through ten. And it's under that deep conviction that he writes 
this psalm. We're going to read this psalm together now. This is our focus and will be our focus over the next couple of weeks. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, this morning we're going to look just at this first part of the psalm and focus on the conviction of sin that David expresses in these first verses. We're going to only look this morning at the first five verses. And then we're going to look at them under three simple headings, acknowledging sin, acknowledging the injury of sin, acknowledging the extent of sin. But before we do that, let's ask God to bless us. Let's pray. Father, I come before you not in moral righteousness and strength, but in weakness as a sinner who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help me to preach your truth. Help me, Lord, to be used as an instrument of your grace this morning. Would you bless this word? And would you grant us, Lord, the gift of repentance and faith? Bless us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our first heading, as we look at these first five verses here, is acknowledging sin. And I'll just give you sort of a a little broad overview of the psalm that we'll refer to as we go through it. It is a psalm that's, it's a bit of a V-shaped psalm, okay? The V starts on the downward swing. And as we look at these first five verses, we can see that David here is moving downwards. He's examining his guilt before God. And he looks at the cause of that guilt in the outer world of his behavior, and then deeper to the actions in the inmost places of his heart. And then we see the turning point, and sort of the bottom of that V happens in verses 8 to 10. This is the turning point. where From here he moves upwards again, where he he, he pleads for a change of heart there. In verse 8, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken rejoice. And he is anticipating and even uh, in some sense prophesying the work of the cross where Jesus Christ had his body broken for us. And from there, uh, we see that the psalm has a turning point and it goes up again. And as he examines the, the, the world of his changed behavior, we see that, that he, he goes on in this passage then to, to rejoice 
um, and, and to trust that God will answer his prayer. So there's that, that V-shaped progression that, that we see here in this psalm. But even before we start to really examine the nuts and bolts of the psalm, I think one of the most significant things, and I've mentioned this before as we've looked at other psalms, but I think it's particularly uh, relevant here, is found in the inscription. It's those first three words, to the choir master. To the choir master. Now, think about that for just a second. Think back now to the most wicked thing you've done in your life. Think. Now, tell me, would you like to have that made into a song that we sing next week at Covenant Baptist Church in our online uh, 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 service where, where hundreds of people can, can hear it and listen to it? It's really kind of an amazing thing uh, that, that this is something that's put out there so prominently. And I just want you to notice this because I think this is one of the reasons why and, and that, that speak to the truth of Christianity. You see, one of the amazing things about the Bible is that it is a historical record. And it's a true historical record. There's no sort of whitewashing of anyone in the scriptures. In fact, it doesn't try and cover up sin. It doesn't try and, 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 and make certain he characters heroes that aren't, right? David is described as the man after God's own heart. And here we are, and we see that David here broke all the commandments, both tables, one to four and six to 10, right? He lied, he committed adultery, he murdered, he coveted. He did all of those things. And it's interesting that the Bible does that and then puts it into a song puts it into a song, something to be sung over and over again. Why? Why does God do this? Well, I believe that God uses the failures of so-called human heroes to highlight the divine nature of our salvation. If you ever need confirmation that salvation is from God alone, look at the life of David. Look at the life of David. But let's get into this. Let's look at these verses. Let's specifically look at how David acknowledges his sin. This is a really important thing that we need to do. Oftentimes, our prayers focus on asking God for him to intervene in a situation or to, to give us things. But how much of our prayer actually consists of confession? And here we see David modeling for us confession. He begins with this plea for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. He's obviously in a situation here where he is suffering under the guilt of sin. And he's asking God to have a kind disposition towards him. He's crying out to God for mercy. And I think it's really important that we see that this is really the only fundamental basis on which we can approach God. We can only approach God on the basis of his mercy. Because the reality is we are not capable, we are not on the same level of God as his justice. We cannot endure his justice. His just punishment for sin is death. All of us would face death. So we can't face him on that level. We certainly don't have the wisdom or the power to compete for him with him. He is not a peer with us. He is God. We are his creatures, creator creature. And so how do we approach this God? The only basis that we have to approach this God is on the basis of his mercy. And that's exactly how God has revealed himself in the scriptures up until this point. You remember when he uh, appeared to Moses in Exodus, he said, he, de he, he declared himself. He said, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, God himself presents himself as a merciful God. And so this is the 
the, the basis, the, the biblical basis that David appre- approaches God. He says, have mercy on me, O God. And then he says, uh, he asks him to blot out his transgressions. Verse 2, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. My apologies, that was the second part of verse 1. Okay. So what does he mean when he says, blot out my transgressions. Well, this has to do with removing the legal guilt and mess that's resulted because of his transgressions. Literally, David here is asking God for a royal pardon. David, the king of Israel, there is no greater than David, is there? No, there is David's greater son. There is God in Jesus Christ. And so he is coming before God and he is asking him to grant him a royal pardon pardon here. And he uses this language here. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This imagery here is is washing. Now, I I think before the pandemic, all of us had an idea what it was to wash our hands, right? You run in the bathroom, do a quick pump, put it under the water, and you're out of there, right? But we've learned that that's not sufficient, right? We got to do the happy birthday song and do the, the 20 seconds and make sure that we get everything in backs and fronts and everything else. We need a thorough washing. This is, this is the kind of washing that is behind this. this the, when, when, when he talks about washing, it's not like, you know, our high efficiency washers here. This is, this is the old fashioned, put it in a machine and beat it, right? Where, where the, 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 the clothes would have been hand beaten. Uh, The dirt literally wrung from them. That's the imagery that he has here. David is asking for God to do the inner work in his heart to remove the stains of sin. He realizes he doesn't have the power to root out sin in and of himself. But notice what the basis for his plea is, his basis for this thing. He says, according to, verse 1, your steadfast love. For those of you who know me, which are many of you, you know that the Hebrew word behind this is my favorite Hebrew word in the Bible. And it's one that has to be said with spit. And it's a good thing that we are doing social distancing and this is on camera because you won't get spit if you're there. But it's chesed, chesed love. That love of God is described. That's the loyal love. That's the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love the loyal love that God places. That's the basis for David's plea here. David doesn't rely on his own goodness. He trusts God instead. He doesn't try and say to God, well, look at how I've cleaned up myself after I did all that. You know, ever since Nathan uh, laid it on me, I've, I've done this and this and this. I've implemented this. I've, I've outlawed that. And and I'm, 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 I've, I've made, Bathsheba, an honest woman, you know, I've done all of these kinds of things. He doesn't try and say that at all, God. No, what does he focus on here in the psalm? He says he points to God's faithfulness to him. His faithfulness. God's willingness to bear the covenant penalty for our sin. This is what the Bible has recorded for us. He is coming on the basis of what God has done in history. He's coming on the basis of what God has sworn himself to. He's coming on the basis of God's word. And these are really the two fundamental bases that, that David has as he comes before God. He comes before God on the basis of God's character and his promises and his word and his compassion. So David argues objectively based on God's word and his promises, but he also argues subjectively based on his compassion, God's compassion. None of his basis is on what he has done in terms of anything righteous or good to make up for what he did wrong. And that's so important for us to see, right? One of the things that I think is sometimes a barrier to people becoming Christians is their own sense of righteousness. 
And I think one of the things that is really important for us to recognize is that when we come to God truly in repentance, we're not just to repent of the bad things that we've done, but we also need to repent of our own self-righteousness, what we've done in the place of God, how we have quieted our hearts and our consciences with the good deeds and whatever else. All of that is a cheap imitation of the real righteousness that only God can give to us. Because even our good deeds, as the Bible says, are filthy rags. Now, you may think to yourself, maybe you, when, you, when you realize just the depth and the wickedness of David's sin, you might think, well, I've never done that. And if I did, I'm not even sure that I would really feel the same confidence that David does here to bring it before God. Maybe this morning you're feeling like you've sinned and there's just no way that you can, that you, you, you can come back. There's no way that God would touch you with a 10-foot pole. And I would say to you is you don't know this God. But thankfully, David did. David's plea here might even strike you as a little bit much. He's broken all the commandments. I mean, and not just like we all know that Jesus says that if you think in your heart lustfully against a woman, you've committed adultery and you're guilty, right? Everyone who, who is, is, is living and breathing has done that, right? On some level, we've broken that commandment. And so in that sense, we're all adulterers. But here, David has gone beyond that, right? He has not only thought it, he's acted on it. He's, he's done it. He's done it in actuality. Just like Jesus says, again, if you uh, say to your brother, call your brother a name and hate him in your heart, it's as good as murdering him. But David just didn't um, hate Uriah or hate the thought of Uriah. He killed Uriah. He murdered him. He sent instructions to Joab to have him killed. So maybe you think as you read this, you know, David coming before God, there's a, there's a bit of a chutzpah here. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, it takes a, it takes a, bit, a bit much for David to, to presume on God in this way. But what we need to understand is that David is using the word of God as it was designed. He's using the covenant God made as God intended. Now you remember that God revealed his covenant to the old, the, the old, in the Old Testament in, uh, to Abraham and to the patriarchs, but Abraham specifically in um, Genesis 15. And if you remember that passage, you remember that one of the things when, when, the, when um, the, the covenant was contracted, today we, we get a document and we sign our names. That's not how they did it in ancient times. No, what they wanted to, to do uh, is, is to move beyond that. When we sign our names, we're basically indemnifying ourselves. In other words, if we break this contract, there are some legal implications. We can be sued for not fulfilling our part of the contract. In ancient times, they made that very evident by the way that they, they cut the covenant. And the way that they would do that is, and the way that God did that was he instructed Abraham to gather animals and cut them in two and spread their entrails. And then as part of the solemnizing, like the signing ceremony, if you want to think of it that way, of the covenant, the lesser party was supposed to walk between the broken bodies of these animals this blood covenant. And it was meant to convey that if this person was to break their word, that they would suffer the same uh, penalty as these animals that had been torn asunder. It was a very visual uh, reminder that you needed to keep your word, right? Otherwise, you would be broken. That was the solemnity of contracts in that day. But if you remember the details from the scriptures, God shows incredible mercy because although Abraham is down here and God is way up here, who is the one who walks between the broken entrails? In a beautiful picture of God's covenant and a beautiful anticipation of the cross of Jesus Christ, the one who bears the penalty for breaking the covenant is God himself. And he comes down at sunset there with, and, and symbolized by a pot and, and fire, he goes between he passes between the broken animals and entrails. You see, this is the covenant God. This is the covenant God, Yahweh of Israel. That's his character. That's how he works compassionately because he knew 
that if Abraham had gone through that, Abraham would be dead and the covenant would be done. There would be no savior. There would be nothing. Because Abraham would sin, and he did many times. He was no hero himself. He lied about his sister twice. He didn't even learn from his previous sin, even when he was rebuked twice, once by a rich man and once by the Pharaoh of Egypt. He still sinned, right? And then his sons sinned after him. There would be no hope. But because God is the one who went between the, the, the cut covenant, there is great hope. And David knows this. And David then knows that this compassionate and gracious God is the covenant God that he can rely on, that he can come to. This God who takes the penalty of sin upon him. And so David here, when he cries out, he knows whom he's crying to. And friends, do you know who you are praying to? Do you know this covenant-keeping God? He is a merciful God. I think one of the most profound things, we, we see reconciliation happening and, and, and prefigured all over the scriptures. But one of the, the greatest stories of reconciliation is the prodigal son who returns home to his father. And some of you know the story. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we don't even need to go into the details. But basically, the son rejects his father, takes his money, squanders it, and then realizes his wrong and comes back. And he expects when he comes before uh, his father that his father will reject him. And he, but he, he knows that his father is, is gracious and kind, and he thinks, well, maybe he will make me a slave in my father's house. And even though he comes before his father and he says to him that he is not even worthy to be a son, interestingly, he still calls his father father as he says it. And I think that that's a, a picture of how we ought to come to God in repentance. We need to come fully aware that we don't deserve it, yet equally aware that we both need it and that God has graciously promised that this is part of his covenant, part of his sonship to us, part of our sonship, part of belonging to him, that we can come to him. You see, friends, like David, we need to acknowledge our sin. And we need to understand that we do that with balance. If we overemphasize the justice of God or we underemphasize his grace, we do him a disservice. Sometimes we have a tendency to overemphasize our sin. And we use this as a form of self-righteousness. If we're self-punishing, oh, and we're just punishing ourselves, and, and we don't go to God, we, 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 we don't get the gift of repentance. So this morning, if you are struggling with sin, and let's be honest, right? Some of the, the regular avenues of sin have maybe been blocked off by, by the coronavirus, but other ones have popped up. Perhaps old ones have, have jumped up at you, and you're struggling with them. But if you think that their power is greater than God's forgiveness, you are mistaken. And if you think that not coming to God is going to resolve them, you are mistaken. Don't overemphasize the power of your sin. But also, don't underemphasize it. One of the things that we need to re remember, and I think one of the things that we really struggle with in our 21st century is realizing the sinful hearts that exist. We don't learn to hate sin, and it won't lose its power over us if we don't acknowledge it, if we don't be transparent about it. So it's very important that we understand this. The key to repenting, to find real peace with God, is in the acknowledgement of sin. We cannot deny it. We need to confess it. And we need to know the grace and the mercy of our God. 1 John 1.9, you've heard me quote this many times, but I think it's so powerful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as I often say, it's not faithful and merciful, although that is true, as we've said. It's faithful and just, because God is just to his covenant. And in his covenant, he took, he took the penalty for sin. 
So we need to acknowledge our sin, not overemphasize it, but not underemphasize it either. But secondly, we also need to acknowledge the injury of our sin. How do we acknowledge our sin? How do we confess that sin? Well, I think David shows us here. We must secondly acknowledge the sin clearly. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. There is no excuse being made here. There's no reservation. We must really confess our sins and be honest and start, stop arguing about it. We have a tendency to be arguers about this. David doesn't use any of that kind of argument or blame shifting. And, and we become blame shifters at an early age. I remember growing up, um, <laughs> I was very good at shifting the blame away from myself to my sister. And then I would turn the, the tables on her. I, I, I would, I would uh, if, if, if I did something wrong against her, I would say, well, you have to forgive 70 times seven, you know, like the petulant little child that I was, right? You see, I, I was good at avoiding blame and I was, I was great at finding blame in others. And that's really a lot of how we deal with things. Isn't it? We don't ever acknowledge we don't begin with the fact that we're a sinner. We've lost that sort of perspective. And that should be our first impulse, right? If somebody confronts us with sin, then our first impulse should be to acknowledge that sin, right? But that's not our first impulse, is it? And David went for possibly up to a year before or, or, or longer before Nathan confronted him in this way. So, so we can live in these, these self-delusions, but we need to remind ourselves that we are sinners. And we're not just expressing our acknowledgement, like, you know, you, you correct your children like, I'm sorry, right? Um, we, we can get people to, to say that. But in my home when we were growing up, my parents used to say to us, sorrow or sorry is an expression of a feeling, right? They wanted, my parents wanted us to be specific about what we had done so that we, they understood that we understood the extent of our sin or our violation. And we see here that David here says that he is guilty of transgressions. He has gone against God's law, right? He names it, right? It's not just a, a passing over. He names it. He says he's turned against, he's transgressed against uh, God's law. And very clearly against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil, and in fact, he goes beyond that. He says, not only have I done evil, he says, you're justified in this, right? So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The Apostle Paul picks this up in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 4. It says, he says, by no means let God be true, though every one of us were a liar, as it is written, though you may be justified, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. David here is saying, you're right, I am guilty, and you are just. He doesn't use excuses. He doesn't say, you know, I had low self-esteem, I was feeling depressed, I didn't feel like going out with the boys to war, and I, I shouldn't have done it, you know, but, you know, I have this sexual addiction. You know, you know about my concubines, you know all of this kind of thing. Or you, or you didn't, you know, just say, well, I've got this medical condition, or... Um, it was just a big mistake or, you know, everyone has needs, right? All of those ridiculous excuses that we can conjure up in a moment. He makes none of those. He calls it for what it is. He even confesses in verse five, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, iniquity. This statement here expresses that he understands the fullness, the extent of the corruption in his life. It extends to conception. And it shows that our moral accountability extends from the womb. God considers the unborn child a soul. This is an important thing for us. So how does David get to this point of confessing his sin like this? Well, some of it is that unequivocal statement by Nathan that says, you are the man, right? And sometimes that is the role of brothers, often pastors, but brothers and sisters in our lives, is rebuked to bring the truth of God to bear on a situation. 
might not like it. None of us do, but it's an important part of the gospel proclamation. It's an important part of covenanting together as a congregation, right? It's through the foolishness of preaching the word of God that men are convicted of sin and saved, right? That's what the Apostle Paul says. It's through the foolishness of preaching that men are saved. And we need to understand that the Bible is very clear. It says we are either for God or we are against God. We can't be lukewarm. We are either sinners who are saved by Jesus Christ, or we are sinners in rebellion against Jesus Christ. And it is my responsibility and ours as we come to this text to recognize that we are sinners and that we all have a sin problem that must be addressed. You have sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God. That's true for every one of us. We need to see that we are like William Carey, a wretched and poor and helpless worm. That's not just 19th century hyperbole. That's 21st century reality. We are sinners. We are wretched, poor, and helpless worms. But we're not just that. Like Carrie, we need to add that second line. On thy kind arms I fall. Well, we need to acknowledge our sins if we are to truly repent. We need to acknowledge the injury of our sins, to be specific. But we need to third and lastly also acknowledge the true nature of sin. David here understands and acknowledges that the sin is done against God and before God. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now let me ask you this morning, how does that sit with you? What do you think about this? And I, sp- I mean specifically, against you, you only have I sinned. Well, wait a second. You know, you, you told us the story about David here. He, what about Bathsheba, right? Was she willing in that arrangement? When, when David sent men to her house to bring him to, to his house, did she have a choice? Quite likely not, right? What about Uriah, the husband, right? Called back from the battlefield? lied to, and then sent back to the battlefield to die, murdered. Don't you think there's a little blood guilt on your hands there, David? Shouldn't you be confessing this about Uriah? Or even Joab, his commander, who he made lie and, and, and basically be the instrument. He brought all these people into this mess. David did. What about the abuse of power? What about, what about the, the royal people in the household? You know, when we, when we have uncertainty, we, we call a royal inquiry, right? That's what we're talking about doing uh, with the situation that happened last weekend. The horrible situation that's there. That's what we do. We call, royal inquir- royal, we, we call royal commissions or inquiries into a situation. But it's interesting here. David's focus, and I, I don't doubt that he certainly felt guilt over a sin against others. But his focus is exclusively focused here on sinning against God. That's what's so alien and foreign about this for many of us. And I think this is one of the reasons why perhaps we haven't truly apprehended our sin. Because we think of our sin as against persons or people or just, you know, something that's, that, that, that's you know, vague. But David here is not vague in his confession of sin. In his acknowledging of his sin, he's specific. He acknowledges the injury of sin, but he acknowledges the true nature of sin, that all sin is ultimately against God. Because what is sin, ultimately? Sin is asserting our way over God's way. This goes back all the way to the garden. God laid down his law, and he said, you shall eat of every tree of the garden uh, except for these ones. And Eve decides, okay, 
She listens to what the serpent says, and she says, you know what, that, that fruit looks good. Even though God has said that I'm not to eat of it, or I will surely die, I'm going to eat of it. I'm going to assert my wisdom and my knowledge and my way over God's way. That's the nature of sin. It's one thing to, to feel remorse over what you've done, to feel bad. A lot of us feel bad. A lot of non-Christians, when they commit adultery, they feel bad about it. But to be repentant is to realize that ultimately you have sinned against God. If you are to truly repent, you are to acknowledge your sin before God. You see, the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that you cannot break the second table of the commandments, the commandments that specifically have to do with our neighbor, right? Do not uh, honor your father and your mother. Um, do not do not kill, uh, or sorry, do not murder. Uh, do not covet. Uh, do not bear false testimony. All of those things are against people. But we can't break those commandments without having first broken the first commandment the first and greatest commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Because when we indulge in our sexual fantasies, we are putting our fantasies above God. And in that place, those fantasies become our God and we serve that Dagon. We serve that Baal. And we bow down and worship it. Because God has laid out very clearly how we are to relate to one another. He has given us sex as a wonderful thing in the context of marriage. But outside of that, he has forbidden that. So when we engage in solo sex or when we engage in, uh, in, in uh, sex with others, outside of God's standards, we are basically saying, I know better than God. I know better than God. I can do whatever I want. And our sin has consequences. Maybe it has consequences for that woman who has been uh, brought into uh, sexual slavery, who is forced to perform before you on the camera. Or maybe it is in the, the strife and, and the weakness that you bring into your marriage. Or the, the, the absolute uh, guilt that you bear because of your indulgence in those ways. But it's not just limited to that, is it? Right? All kinds of things that we do put our needs and our desires above God's. When we ignore God's law, we have broken the first commandment before we break any commandments that we have committed against each other. David could only have committed adultery if he had made himself or his lust his own God and replaced God's law. Or he had made Bathsheba his idol. He can't be happy, or I can't have her. If I don't have this, then I can't find satisfaction before God. How many times have we said that, or thought that, or lived that way? I can't be happy until I have this. I must have that. It is God's laws that he has broken. Not David's laws, but God's laws. In your sight. That's what he says. <clears throat> Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And this gets back to the issue that we spoke about at the beginning. We sometimes feel like we haven't done anything wrong. And the reality is, we don't know if we are looking in our own sight. We need the word of God to be the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. We need to determine... Have I sinned? If you need to determine whether you've sinned or not, look at the scriptures. They're very clear about what is right and what is wrong. We live in a universe where God has defined what is right and what is wrong. Right at the end of each day of creation, it says, it is good, it is good, it is good. At the end of it all, it is very good. And then later on, it says, it is not good. And that's the beginning of where God is defining for us what is right and wrong. We cannot rely on ourselves. We must know that we are we are dependent upon the God who made us. And that just makes sense. He's the one who made us. 
He created this whole universe. He created the laws that govern this universe. And we're accountable to him. The Bible says that because we do not worship him, his wrath is poured out against us. You might say, well, I don't feel his wrath. Well, it doesn't matter whether you feel it or not. The Bible tells us that it's true. Just like you may not feel like you have the coronavirus, but if you have it, you need the vaccine. We need a vaccine. We need a cure. We need help. You don't have that. But there is a help and a cure for sin. And it is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not found in our own cleaning up our lives and doing what is good. No. It's coming and crying out, have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. I think it's important for us to understand that sin is not only the primary cause of sin, it's the reason for its offensiveness. If we repent over the sin's consequences, we are not really repenting of the sin. And this is, I think, really important for us as we look at why David is addressing God in this. Right? David could be repenting because he's worried about public opinion. Right? He could be backpedaling. He says, well, if I hurt people, I will lose my credibility and, and my popularity in front of the, the people, and, and I'll lose my kingship, and the Philistines will come in. So I better do something. I better backtrack. I better say, well, you didn't get it right. Or, you know what, let, let, me, let, me, let me just repent of this so that I can get things back. If you repent, though, the repentance that we see here is David's focus is on how the sin has violated God and dishonored him. The one that he owes everything to. It says in the Bible that we live, we move, we have our being. Our very breath comes from God and we owe it to him. The Old Testament, I've been reading this week in the Old Testament about how God claims even our firstborn, right? Like we, we owe everything to him, and he shows grace in the Old Covenant that was expressed by the firstborn child, right? And that's why, uh, well, there's lots that we could go into in that, but it's, it's a wonderful thing. We owe everything to God. And David here is confronted with his own sinful nature, and it frightens him with its reality and its extent. But he recognizes that the key issue is that he has sinned against God. He's offended God. It's not about the consequences, and it's not even so much about his sins against his neighbor. Those are definitely there, and those need to be repented of. But first and foremost, he has rebelled against God, and his very soul is in jeopardy. And this is the thing that you need to hear me this morning. Your soul is in jeopardy. Every one of our souls is in jeopardy until it finds the refuge of God's grace, until it knows the chassid of God's forgiveness and mercy. You are accountable to God. Whether you feel it or not, you are accountable to God. Have you confronted your sins before God? When was the last time you prayed to God and confessed specific sin? This is what Jesus is getting at. This is what, what Jesus is getting at when, when, when the, the people come to him in the natural disasters, the pandemics of his day, and they say, well, where was God in all this? And Jesus says, do you think you're better than they are? Repent, lest you likewise perish. Jesus wasn't trying to distract them. He wasn't trying to focus them on something else. He was trying to focus them on the biggest problem that they faced. The biggest problem that you and I face, the problem of your sin, the problem of my sin. Not Mary's or John's or Pilate's or someone else. Our sin. This is what alienates us. This is what keeps us from God. And the Bible is really clear. And we see it here in Psalm 51. Your sin is against God. And he takes it personally. We violated his law. It's not Canada's law or quarantine law. I saw yesterday that the government is passing 
a bill that if farmers who bring in foreign workers break quarantine, they're going to be charged a fine of a million dollars. And that makes headlines, a million dollars. Farmers are saying there's no way we can afford that. And the government's response is, well, don't do it. Right? There's a motivation for you. Scary stuff. But the reality of what David is dealing with is far greater. It's far greater. Because our sin before God must be accounted for. And guess what? Not only don't you have a million dollars, you don't have a quadzillion dollars. Because there's no amount of money or activity or anything that we can generate in our own steam that can pay God for our sins. Only Jesus' death, his substitutionary, his penal substitutionary death on the cross, in our place, taking that punishment, can pay the price for our sin, for the lust, for the anger, for the selfishness, for the pride, for the false witness. Only Jesus can pay that debt. Jesus pleads with us. Do you think that you're worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You will all likewise perish. But the message of the gospel is one of repentance and faith. Faith in the work of God. Faith in the mercy, in the chesed of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe this? Have you confronted your sin? I think many of us struggle to do that. Many of us need to do that. We all need to do that. Sinclair Ferguson speaks of the 11th century um, theologian Anselm of Canterbury, one of my favorites, who in a dialogue with um, another thinker, uh, this, this thinker is trying to figure out why did God become man and go to the cross and die and be resurrected? He just doesn't seem to make sense of it. And his name, interestingly enough, is Bozo. Okay, so I'm not making this up. But Anselm responds, and he says to Bozo, he says this, you have not yet considered the greatness of the weight of sin. One of the reasons why so many people refuse to come to Christ in their own um, estimation is because they do not realize and recognize the cancer virus of sin that is at the core of their being. They're blinded to it, and they have not considered it. Even in this time of opportunity that's being given by this coronavirus, we can waste our time, can't we? We can focus on all kinds of other things, but we need to focus on is the main thing. One of the things, Christian and non-Christian, that I want to encourage you at this time, that we have with, with time uh, on our hands, more time perhaps. Some of us have less time, others have more time on our hands. But if you have time, this is an important thing. Don't just turn on the next streaming content and binge watch your way out of this. This is time for you to consider yourself before God. This is a time to examine yourself in the light. And it will not be easy for us to confront this reality. But God is a God who gives the gift of repentance, the awareness of our sins, and the desire to turn completely away. That's what repentance really is, is turning away from and then turning towards turning away from sin and turning towards God. And in future weeks, we will see how David did this. But it starts with acknowledging sin, acknowledging the injury of sin, acknowledging the extent of sin and who it's against. May we all come before our God and confess our sins and ask him 
to work in us the work of his grace and his mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray, would you work by your Holy Spirit, Lord, even as David was convicted of his sin, even as he realized, Lord, that his great sin was against the God who made him and who indeed defined what is right and wrong. Help us, Lord, to come again under a fresh conviction for our sin, Lord, and turn to you again in repentance and faith. For, Lord, you have called us to a life of repentance. We need your gospel, not just once, but every day. The gospel bad news that reveals who we really are and the, the gospel good news in Jesus Christ of how you rescue and cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, we pray, work by your Holy Spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen.